On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Our Lord Jesus, you promised us when you were with us that whenever we would get together to talk about you, that before the conversation would be over, you would show up in our midst. And you've never failed to fulfill that promise. So we welcome you now, not just as a member of the congregation, but as Lord of your church. And we pray that as Lord, it would be your word that is heard this morning. We pray that you would speak to each of our hearts, that it would not be a human word, but a divine that we receive. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at the first half of the Gospel of Mark, and we saw the means by which Jesus led the disciples to the point of being able to ask, the, where he asked them the question, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? And they were able to say, we know who you are. You are the Messiah. We saw that the way Jesus led them to that point was through a combination of stories and situations where Jesus encountered every type of human need, every type of hurt, every type of human problem, and showed that he was the answer to every problem of the human heart. And what we see now is that there is a shift that takes place in the Gospel of Mark. For the first half of that Gospel, Jesus is showing the disciples that he is the answer. And now that they know that he is the answer, he has to show them what the problem is. And it is a sad, sorry story. I encourage you sometime to read through the latter half of the Gospel of Mark and ask yourself the question, what kind of people did Jesus choose to be his disciples? What manner of men did he choose to be the ones on whom the future of Christianity rested? You see, from the moment of Peter's confession of faith at Caesarea Philippi until the last verse of the Gospel of Mark, there is not a single occurrence where a disciple is depicted in a positive light. Not one. You'll remember that we have that great and glorious moment of insight where Peter says, I know who you are. You are the Messiah. And Jesus said, that's right. Now that you know who I am. And by the way, Peter, you didn't figure that out on your own. You got it because our Father spoke to you. But now that you know who I am, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. There I will be rejected. I will suffer. I will be killed. I will be buried. But I will rise again. And Peter, Peter takes him aside and says, never, Lord. And Jesus turns on him and uses the strongest language that he uses in all of scripture towards anyone, even stronger than what he says to the scribes and Pharisees, the ones who crucified him. He says, Satan, get behind me. Back in the temptation, the devil 
told me that there was a way that I could have the kingdoms of the world without going through a cross. And now, Peter, you're speaking the same words to me that I heard back in the temptation. Peter, you no longer have the mind of God. You have the mind of the flesh. It's interesting how quickly we can shift, isn't it? From having those divine spiritual insights to all of a sudden having the mind of the flesh once again. It's just a few days after this that Jesus takes his three best, Peter, James, and John, up to a mountaintop to pray. And while they are there, they witness the transfiguration. And they are witnesses to a conversation between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And as they're coming down from the mountaintop, Jesus turns to his three top guys, and he says, don't tell anybody what you saw until I rise from the dead. They go off to one side, and they say, what is this rising from the dead business? What? What on earth could he be talking about? What does that mean? They get to the bottom of the mountain, and there's a commotion. And the other disciples are in the midst of that. A man comes up to Jesus, and he said, My son has an evil spirit that afflicts him. It causes him great harm. Your disciples just went through the countryside, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons. And I brought my son to them, and I said, Can you help my boy? But whatever power they once had, it seems to have leaked out of them because they couldn't do anything. Jesus said, how long do I have to put up with you, O lacking in faith generation? Bring the boy to me. And they bring the boy to Jesus, and he rebukes that evil spirit, and the boy is delivered. They go on along their way, and Jesus talks to them the second time about the cross. He says, we are going to Jerusalem, and I want you to know that when we get there, I will be rejected. I will suffer, I will be killed, but I will rise again. But Mark tells us they didn't understand. They had no idea what he was talking about. They get to their destination. John said, well, or excuse me, they get to their destination and Jesus said, boys, I couldn't help but notice as we were walking along that you were having quite the conversation and you didn't include me in it. Your faces were getting rather red. You seemed agitated. What is it you were talking about? Peter says, John, you tell him. John said, you always want to speak for us the rest of the time, Peter. You tell him. Jesus said, you don't have to tell me. I know what you were talking about. You were arguing about who's going to have the top position when the kingdom comes. You see, you believe that when we get to Jerusalem, the kingdom is coming, and I was trying to talk to you about the cross, but you were too busy arguing about who's going to have which position in the cabinet. You don't understand my kingdom. Positions in my kingdom are not given out on the basis of authority or power or privilege. If you want a place in my kingdom, it comes through service and through sacrifice and through humility. You want to understand anything about my kingdom? Well, look at those children that are playing over there. Because if you want to have anything to do with my kingdom, you're going to have to become like one of those little ones. John said, well, master, we did one good thing today. Jesus said, I'm so glad. What was that? He said, well, we saw a man casting out demons in your name, but because he's not a member of the Church of the Nazarene, we told him to knock it off. (laughs) Jesus said, you really don't understand my kingdom, do you? If he's not against us and he speaks in my name, you should not throttle or oppose him. And if you cause one of those little ones to stumble, it would be better if you had a millstone tied around your neck. The next day, some parents bring their children to the disciples, and they said, can you just get Jesus to lay his hand on their heads and bless them? And they said, he doesn't have time for little ones. The next day, 
Jesus talks to them a third time about the cross, about his passion and his suffering. It's interesting that this time Mark doesn't tell us that they didn't understand, but we know they didn't. Because when they get to their destination, James and John take them aside and say, Master, we have a request to make of you. And Jesus said, what's that? They said, can we have the right hand and the left in your kingdom? This is the best the world has to offer. The 12 elect disciples. Jesus said, can you drink the same cup that I drink? And they said, sure, no problem. Jesus said, you will. But you don't understand now what that means. Positions in the kingdom are not mine to give. They are given by my Father. And they're given out of service and out of sacrifice and out of humility. They get to Jerusalem. Jesus said, all of you will forsake me. Two verses later, Peter says, not I. Two verses after that, the others chime in and say, nor we. 19 verses later, Mark tells us they all forsook him. Jesus said, the weight of the world is upon me. Will you pray with me? And he takes his three best guys, Peter, James, and John, to the garden to pray. And while he is in prayer, in agony, sweating drops of blood, his three best are sound asleep, absolutely insensitive to the suffering of the Savior. Peter said, no matter what anybody else says, no matter what anyone else does, I have got your back. I'll stick with you like glue. I will never leave you. And then a little servant girl comes up to him and said, say, aren't you one of his? And Peter said, never saw the guy before. Don't know who he is. Pretty sorry examples, aren't they? These are the 12 elect, the ones on whom the future of Christianity rests, the ones of whom Jesus said, as the Father sends me, I send you. It's up to you to finish the work that I start. And I look at that and I think, this is dreadful. This is ghastly. He couldn't get anyone better. And it's at this point I also notice something else that's interesting about the Gospel of Mark, and that is the use of personal names. You know how many occasions, how many stories in the life of Jesus, we have no idea who was present. But Mark tells us all about Peter saying, not so, Lord. Peter, James, and John saying, what's this rising from the dead business? What what could that mean? James and John saying, can we have the right hand and the left? John, jealous about a fellow who's able to cast out demons when he can't. Peter, James, and John asleep in the garden. Peter denying him. And the astonishing thing is that tradition tells us that Mark was Peter's friend. I don't know about you, I don't think I would want to have a friend like that. Someone who would faithfully record for all future generations every one of my biggest blunders and missteps and embarrassments. But Mark does. And when you consider the role that those three played, Peter, James, and John, the role that they played in the early church as the top leaders, and yet Mark seems to single them out, identify their failings, and call them out by name. And you know, I think that's exactly why he did it. I think that was Mark's way of saying to us, I want you to understand something, that none of us 
was adequate when it came to doing what Christ wanted us to do. None of us had it within us, not even the best of us, the brightest of us, the noblest of us, the loudest of us. None of us were adequate when it came time to be faithful to him. And then Mark shares a fascinating little snippet with us that the other writers of the gospel don't about the night that Jesus was arrested. And there in the garden, there's this young man and the soldiers go to arrest him and they grab a hold of him and he escapes by slipping right out of his garment and he goes running off naked as a jaybird, becomes first Christian streaker. And tradition tells us that that young man that Mark tells us about was Mark. I think that was his way of saying, by the way, I wasn't any better than any of the rest. So as I said, I look at that, I think this is horrible. What's going on here? Especially when you consider who these are. Because these aren't just guys off of the street. These are the 12 elect. They have spent, by this point, three and a half years with Jesus. They have been called by him. They have given up everything to follow him. They have served him. They have learned from him. You will remember that they were the first ones to actually say, you are the Messiah. They are the ones that uh, when Jesus sends them out among the countryside, that they have the power to heal the sick, raise the dead, to cast out demons. They can do all of the things that we associate with the post-Pentecost church they're doing right in the first half of the Gospel of Mark. These are his guys. And when they come back from that experience, Jesus says to them, don't, don't get excited about all the things you've been able to do. Here's the real reason to get excited. Be excited about the fact that your names are written down in heaven. So these are his men. These are his called. But you know something? You can be saved. You can have your sins forgiven. You can be following Christ with all of your strength. And I never get to this point without reflecting on the fact that you can even be called. And you can preach in his name. And you can still have what John Wesley called a remaining sin within you. The disciples had it. I notice some of us seem to have it too. What is that remaining sin? Well, it is, in essence, self-interest. I mean, why is it that the disciples weren't able to understand what Jesus was saying? It wasn't that they were stupid. They were just too busy thinking about themselves. They could think about the kingdom, but they couldn't think about the cross. You see, their position in the kingdom was more important to them than the kingdom itself. And so when Jesus talked about a kingdom, they could embrace that because they could picture themselves and where they would be But when he started talking about a cross. That didn't fit in with their concept, and so they couldn't understand. And you know there are things that you and I will never be able to understand, never be able to grasp, never be able to envision as long as that self-interest remains a part of us. Because you know, if, if that's what guides my way of thinking... If I look at everything through the lens of what's in it for me, what do I get out of it? How is this going to affect me? If that's my point of reference, it will darken my intellect. 
where I will not be able to grasp his thoughts. And that's why you and I need the sanctifying power of God's Holy Spirit within us to purge us of that self-interest so that we can think his thoughts and think his ways. Because you see, if you think wrong, you'll act wrong. What's going on with the disciples when they are fighting with each other about position? What's going on with the disciples when, when they are rebuking a man who is casting out demons, but he's not one of theirs? It is simply self-interest that manifests itself as jealousy. What's going on when you've got his top three disciples asleep in the garden? It's self-interest. I mean, they were sleepy. They were tired. And when Jesus needed them to do something, the first thing that was on their mind is what they needed for themselves. And so they were absolutely insensitive to the Savior and what he wanted from them in that moment. What's going on when you have disciples that, that pledge their loyalty and their devotion to Jesus, and then they turn tail and run at a moment? It's self-interest. It's not that they didn't love him. They were just too busy looking out for old number one. And as long as that self-interest remains within us, we too will lack spiritual understanding We'll lack power. We'll lack, we'll lack courage. We'll lack conviction. We will be like Peter, who in one moment has this profound, awesome, spiritual insight, and in the very next moment, we are like a roller coaster, down at rock bottom, thinking in our own strength and acting in our own strength. And it's because of that self-interest. So, what can be done about it? Can anything be done about it? Well, I noticed something seemed to work for the disciples because the Gospel of Mark ends talking about a bunch of sorry examples. But by the time you get to the second book of Acts, well, it says that it's the same guys. It says that it's the same names, but if I didn't know any better, I would think that I was reading about a completely different breed of cat. Because you'll remember, you've got Peter. Peter, the guy who who kept saying, what does rising from the dead mean? Peter, who couldn't grasp spiritual insights. Peter, who Jesus said, you're not thinking the mind of God, you're thinking the mind of the flesh. Yet on the day of Pentecost, when God's Holy Spirit comes down and fills the believers, and they go spilling out of the upper room into the streets of Jerusalem, causing quite a commotion, and the Jewish leaders come out and they look around and they say, what's going on here? Is everybody drunk? It's Peter who stands up and says... You mean you don't understand? Let me explain it to you. You remember that well-known book that all of us know so well, the, the book of Joel? And he proceeds to preach a sermon right on the spot, explaining all of this in terms of the book of Joel. I wonder how many of us would have enough spiritual insight and familiarity with the word of God to be able to, to interpret things in light of the book of Joel. I wonder how many of us preachers would have the ability uh, the drop of the hat, to preach a sermon, let alone a salvation message on Joel. And yet 3,000 people are saved that day because of this man who is no longer a pillar of exploding ignorance. You've got Peter who, along with the other disciples, no longer has the power to be able to do the things that he once did, once knew more of the Lord's presence and power and intimacy in his life, but it leaked out. 
And then after Pentecost, Peter and John are walking through the, through the temple courts, and they see a man who's paralyzed, and he's begging for money. And Peter says, oh, man, I, I'd like to help you. Sorry, I work for the church. I just, I don't have anything on me. Sorry, I, oh, wait, I do have something you might be interested in. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. And the man stretches out his legs, and he walks. Gone is this fellow who has lost power. He is now very embodiment of Christian power. Or what about courage and conviction? You got Peter, who was so scared that when a teenage girl asked him if he was one of Jesus' disciples, and he says, never saw him, don't know who he is, don't know what you're talking about. And yet when the temple leaders, the ones who were responsible for crucifying Jesus, bring Peter before them and they say, you better knock it off or you're going to suffer the same fate as your master. It's Peter who looks him in the eye and says, are we to obey man or God? I don't know what you're going to do. I know what we have to do. We have to obey the one who gave his life for us, the one whom you crucified. He is a transformed man in his conduct, in his thinking, and in his character. And in terms of pushing for position and place within the kingdom, it's Peter, who when he is condemned to death, doesn't run from it, he embraces it, but he says, on one condition, I'm not worthy to die the same death as my Savior. And he asks to be crucified upside down. His concern about his place in the kingdom has taken second place to his concern about the kingdom itself. Now, how did that happen? Can I just point out that it wasn't the passage of time? Because we're talking about just a matter of days from those sorry examples of the Gospel of Mark to Acts chapter 2. So there's no time for this self-interest to just gradually be erased through a process. There wasn't time for him to get more education. There wasn't even time for his application to get over to seminary, let alone for him to get one class out of the way. So it wasn't passage of time, it wasn't more education, it wasn't more gray hair and wrinkles. What happened? God's spirit invaded his. It filled him. It purified him. It cleansed him. And it gave him the mind of God. I need to ask you this morning, where do you relate to what we've been talking about today? Do you ever find that your ways are not his ways? Do you ever find that there are times when you have this great, glorious, spiritual insight and the very next moment you're acting in your own strength and it's like a roller coaster going up and down between Sunday and the middle of the week? Do you find that you're simply unable to grasp certain spiritual truths, to know who he is or what he wants from you? Do you find that there was a time in your life when you knew more of his power and his presence and his, and his intimacy than you do now? Do you find that much to your dismay, you lack the courage, the conviction to stand up for him, to be faithful the way that you know you should? Well, if that's you, can I just say, you've had some pretty good company. See, there's some other fellows who went through a similar thing, 
fellows by the name of Peter, James, John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, and some others. Some people who were some pretty sorry examples, but they didn't remain that way. And I want you to notice the way that God got them to the point of being able to purge them of that self-interest. It started, first of all, by him leading them to the point where they would know who he is. And once they knew who he was, he began to show them who they were. You know, you will never know who you are until you know who he is. See, as Christians, we're the only ones in the world who believe that, that God is, doesn't just speak the truth. We believe he is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. The only way you can know truth is to know him. And once he leads you to that point where you know who he is and where you know that he is the answer, he's going to start to show you where the problem is. And you generally don't have to look very far. The problem is usually right here. It goes by a lot of different names. Self-interest, carnality, original sin, whatever you want to call it. It is that thing within us that says, I want what I want, and I want it right now. I want my way more than anything else. I've heard people describe it this way, that if, if there was something that you wanted to do and you knew it was wrong, but you thought you could get away with it, that no one would ever see it and no one would ever know, you would go ahead and do it anyway. It's that self-interest. And as long as that reigns within your heart, you will experience those roller coasters, those ups, those downs, and you will be a pretty sorry example. And if you want to follow that same example as the disciples, if you can get to that point of knowing him, that is, that is great. That's wonderful. But you know, too many of us stop right there. And the reality is that Christ died to do more for us than most of us ever let him. And if you've gotten to that point of saying that he is the answer and you've accepted him as your Lord and you believe on him for the forgiveness of your sins, don't stop there. Because he's going to take you then to the point where he shows you that there is something within you that he wants to do more. He wants to free you from that self-interest. and He'll lead you through that same experience that the disciples went through. In a few moments, we are going to celebrate together the sacrament of Holy Communion. And as we do, we'll, we are reminded that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his disciples. And taking the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sin. Do this in remembrance of me. And in a few moments, I'm going to invite us to be able to come and participate in communion. And in the Church of the Nazarene, we practice an open table. You don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to have ever been here in your life. This is not our sacrament, it is his. All those who with true repentance, for sake of their sins, and believe on Jesus for forgiveness, are invited to come. But as you do today, when the time comes, I'm going to invite the, the servers to come They'll take these stations, and when you come forward, you'll receive the bread, which represents for us the broken body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you'll dip it in the cup, which represents for us the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. But as you come forward today, I wonder if there would be anyone who would say, you know, up until this point, I have never gotten to the point of knowing who he is, but I'd like to. If you have not yet accepted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, today can be your, the day. 
And this can be the day in which you participate as a member of the family of Jesus Christ in communion. So if you would like to be that person, I'd encourage you to just take a detour over to one of these altars. Kneel here and pray if you're physically able. If not, just come here to the front row. We'd love to be able to pray with you. But it may be that when I invite you to come forward, there would be some here today who would say, you know what? As you're talking about those sorry examples of the disciples, I can really resonate with them. Because I, despite my best efforts, I would describe my spiritual life as a roller coaster, an up and a down, this way and that. Sometimes having great insight, sometimes being absolutely clueless. Sometimes being so convicted about what to do and the next moment lacking the courage and the conviction to stand up for him. If that's you, then today in following Jesus, and you come forward, I'd invite you also to take a detour over here to the altar. He's given his life for you. Would you be willing to give to him that last remaining bit of self-interest and carnality, that thing within you that desires to have its own way? You may have walked in here today as a pretty sorry example. We all have the ability to walk out of here today as pillars of the faith, transformational agents, rather than a reflection of the world around us. I invite our servers to come forward to help with communion.